0: The Interchange is brought to you by PG&E. Did you know that 20% of EV drivers in the U.S. are in PG&E service territory in Northern California? But the electric revolution is not going to happen with single drivers alone, so PG&E is helping to electrify corporate fleet vehicles. Get in touch with PG&E's EV specialists to find out how you can take your transportation fleet electric. Find out more at pge.com slash gtm. Support for The Interchange also comes from Wonder Capital, by now, you know that Wonder can finance your commercial or community solar projects, and you know they can do it at lightning speeds. But did you know they now have lower rates and can finance all kinds of projects? Head over to wondercapital.com GTM to experience the Wonder difference. I'm rolling. Ready to shame ourselves?
1: <laughs> if nothing else, we will succeed at that.
0: This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Greentech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. I'm in Boston, out in the Bay Area, with a severe case of Flegshkum, is Shale Khan. He's Managing Director at Energy Impact Partners.
1: Shale, how you feeling? Hey, Stephen. I'm feeling uh, a a little bit better, but still quite a bit of flight shame. I've decided I'm just not going to try to pronounce it in Swedish, by the way. I Somebody sent me afterwards the correct pronunciation, and it's hard enough that I'm just giving up.
0: Okay, well, we didn't get any angry notes from any Swedish listeners, but we will stick to flight shame. For those who don't understand what we're talking about and you need a little bit more context on what flight shame actually is, go to our previous episode. This is a second episode in our two-parter, where we try to challenge our beliefs on a particular topic. We're picking something we believe deeply and then arguing the other side and then we'll see if we can convince ourselves. Shale, uh, your whole bit on flight shaming in the second half of last week's episode, it influenced my choice for, for this particular show.
1: I'm happy to hear it. It influenced your choice in that you feel shame about all the travel that you do?
0: Well, not necessarily, but it got me thinking about my behavior more. Once I heard that word, I couldn't unhear it. In fact, I saw two articles about it in the days after our episode launched. One was from The Guardian. I I sent it to you through email, and it was all about this small but growing no-fly movement. So people are really talking about it, and it made me revisit my perception of personal responsibility for climate change. So a little background, um, like a lot of people, I was raised to believe firmly that individual actions matter in a big way. This phrase, act locally, think globally, was becoming very prominent in you know the late 80s, early 90s. When I was growing up, I learned the phrase in first grade, and it was burned into my brain. I assumed that the recycling program that I helped develop in elementary school was helping save the planet. I thought that turning out the lights when I left the room was this deep act of environmentalism. Uh, Is this in line with the way you were raised or or thought about things when you were a kid, Shale?
1: Yeah, I would say broadly that is true. I was raised by pretty progressive parents who had themselves spent a lot of time uh, pushing individual action during the 60s. So I definitely was raised, uh, you know, sort of like militant recycling type of a view.
0: Right. And I carried that with me as an adult. So my wife will tell you that I am extremely militant about those things to this day. And my belief is that if we all make appropriate adjustments to our lifestyles, it adds up to something meaningful. If you take individual actions in aggregate, of course they're going to have an impact. I mean, how depressing would the world be if you didn't believe in that? I'm not fully nihilistic yet. But if we're challenging our beliefs then this seemed like a good one to challenge because it's so fundamental to the way I was raised. So I'm going to argue that the big things we're told to do to help the climate stop flying, stop eating meat, stop driving, buy those solar panels. They might be a little helpful around the margins, but they are more of a distraction than anything. They are certainly not sufficient to do anything about climate change.
1: Right. So basically you're going to try to make the case that like any individual action is uh, is probably taking away from our attention that would otherwise be dedicated to some version of collective action or political action or something like that, that will be far more impactful.
0: Yeah, I'm going to let you off the hook with your business travel.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting extension of what we were talking about last week, because last week the question was, basically, do people care enough about energy to change their behavior? And then this week you're trying to argue that even if the answer is yes, and people do care enough, and they will change their behavior, that it, it doesn't really make much of a difference. Yes,
0: exactly. So I wanna break it down in a few different categories. The first is agriculture and food choices. The second is flying and driving. The third is energy use and using renewables. And then we'll kind of wrap it all up and see if I've convinced myself in any way. So when you hear people talking about the need to change their diets for climate and environmental reasons, what do you usually hear?
1: Well, agriculture is a significant source of greenhouse gas emissions. It is a sector where we don't have really great answers Um, on the supply side, in terms of how to decarbonize. So we don't have a solution to methane emitted from cows, for example. Um, And so the solution that people generally tend to propose for agriculture is on the demand side, which is, if we just started consuming less red meat in particular, um, then there'd be less demand, and less demand would mean less emissions. So I think this is, you know, there, you see cases on both sides, the demand side and the supply side for how to change it in um, the energy sector, but in the agriculture sector, for the most part, I think the attention is on the demand side.
0: So I've always assumed that cutting meat out of your diet completely would have a huge impact on your own personal environmental footprint. And certainly it does have an impact on the amount of water that you consume, um, the amount of land use that goes into your food choices. And, you know, th- there are a lot of ethical issues wrapped up in your choices of whether you eat meat or how you eat meat. But when it comes to reducing carbon dioxide pollution, it actually doesn't have a huge impact individually. Um, according to a study from environmental research letters, the uh, switch to a plant-based diet only saves about 07 metric tons of carbon dioxide each year. And I saw some other estimates that showed about 0.8 metric tons of carbon dioxide a year. That's about the same as burning 90 to 100 gallons of gas yearly. So, an impact for sure. But it's almost nothing compared to the average American's overall carbon footprint. The average American uh, emits about 17 metric tons of CO2 per year. So, you're looking at a tiny, tiny fraction of our overall
1: footprint. That's interesting. I would have thought it to be a little bit higher myself. I mean, you know, I was looking the other day just to take it from a systematic Approach As opposed to an individual approach, I was looking at the breakdown of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States, admittedly not totally representative of the world. But, you know, agriculture is a relatively small share. It's basically on par with, uh, with buildings, with direct emissions from buildings, but each of those are significantly below, you know, we've talked about this before, transportation is the highest, electricity is the second highest, and those are pretty close to each other. Industrial is the third highest, and sort of way down the line from there is agriculture and buildings. So I guess this is in line with what you're saying. Um, Nonetheless, if we're talking about basically one metric ton out of 17 that you can kind of cut out with a relatively easy change, um, which is just becoming a vegetarian, then that doesn't seem completely insubstantial to me.
0: So the other argument is that buying local is a great way to change your climate behavior. And this is where things get a little sketchier. So, you know, clearly there's an impact, albeit I'll, I'll I'm arguing not a huge impact individually in cutting out meat. Um, But a lot of people also say, hey, let's let's buy our food locally because you'll cut down transportation emissions when the food gets to your plate from a farm that's way closer to you. And generally people define local food as within a hundred miles of where you're eating it. And it turns out that buying local actually only shaves around four or 5% of the greenhouse gases associated with your food And that's because transportation is only this small piece of emissions. And actually, it's fertilizers, manure management, plowing, irrigation. They all account for the impact on your food. And certainly, factory farms and industrial agriculture has a huge impact. But a lot of local farms do as well. And just because you're buying local doesn't mean you're necessarily buying from a sustainable farm that's keeping its emissions in check. They have the same fertilizer, uh, manure, and irrigation needs as any other big farm. So collectively speaking, a lot of these local farms can have a similar environmental impact, and you're not actually slashing your emissions in the way that you think you are by buying local food. That's
1: compelling. What about what if this is the wrong way to think about it? You know, there's one you're, you're sort of making the case built around what is my personal greenhouse gas emissions profile and how can I drive that down? But, you know, the other way to think about it, particularly on, I guess this is true of both the local thing and the um, not eating meat thing, but it's, it's probably especially true of the not eating meat thing. What is the right way to think about it is signaling, you know, signaling to the market, where consumer demand is headed, and then creating by by using that pull mechanism, hoping that you'll get a push from the suppliers. In other words, um, if enough people stop eating meat and the, you know start to bend the demand curve for meat downward, then perhaps that will force suppliers to introduce more. You know, plant-based alternatives or um, sustainable meat that somehow does reduce greenhouse gas emissions, or something like that, and then you start to see significant action. So your your individual action, um, along with a bunch of other people who are taking the same action, basically force the cu- the, the large scale action that you that actually can make a difference. Do you subscribe to that at all?
0: No, I don't subscribe to that necessarily because I think the number of people who are willing to cut out meat is fairly small. So to me, the radical change that we'll need to see in agriculture doesn't come from the consumer making the switch. It's not about Burger King putting in a Beyond Meat burger. Sure, that has a little impact around the edges. Sure, it influences people and gets them aware of new meat options. But to truly slash agricultural emissions, you need to focus on large-scale, centralized farms. You need to dump tens of billions of dollars into R&D to help create new ways of cleaning up fertilizers and cutting natural gas consumption, figuring out how to sequester carbon in the soil. Those are the things that have a real impact, not you know, a group of people who decide that they're going to eat less meat on Mondays. Mm.
1: And I guess the counterargument to that is it's sort of a failure of imagination. And you mentioned the Burger King example, which I think is actually a perfect example, which is you start by, you know, somebody introduces a, uh, a fake burger, a plant-based burger that is tasty and feels like a real burger at a set of early adopters start to eat it. So there's proven demand for it, even if it's, um, even it's relatively small but then it becomes more well known for whatever reason burger king decides that they want to jump on this train they feel the consumer pull or they want to be out ahead of it or whatever reason burger king introduces it all of a sudden it is widespread right burger king has thousands of locations and people start to be more aware of it it becomes more mainstream and that you know if that really catches fire then all Burger King's competitors do the same thing. And suddenly it has a meaningful impact on the total share of fast food burgers that are eaten, which I would suspect is a, is a decent chunk of overall meat consumption in the United States. And so, you know, perhaps the group of individual collective action that's happening at the beginning doesn't itself have a big impact directly, but it does by sparking a market.
0: Sure, that's true, but it's still going to be emissions reductions around the edges. And if you want to make an impact in agriculture, it's about dumping tens or hundreds of billions of dollars into technologies that are going to reduce emissions at the source, not necessarily change consumer behavior. I will say, regardless of which side of this I'm arguing, deciding to cut out your meat consumption can be a really beneficial choice for ethical reasons, for other environmental reasons like, again, water consumption and land use. But when it comes to carbon emissions in the agriculture sector, I don't think it has the impact that a lot of people think it does. So let's go to transportation, more specifically flying and driving. Flying in particular has become a real target of uh, environmentalists. In fact, in the Green New Deal, in one of the early drafts that was released that got lampooned, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez hinted at like banning flying or, or getting getting rid of most airplane travel. So, Shale, when you, you hear people talking about needing to cut down their flying and their driving, what do you typically hear?
1: I think it's actually I would separate out flying and driving. Um, on the flying side, the argument is uh, aviation emissions are going to be the hardest part of the transportation sector to decarbonize. We it's gonna take longer for us to get electric planes if they ever come and even if they do, they may not be there for long-haul flights. Um, and you know things like biofuels can only get us so far. We, so basically we just don't we don't have a great near-term solution for emissions from from flying and so uh, the only way to significantly reduce, um, transportation emissions in that subsector is by having people fly less, so that's the flying argument, um, and from from there <laughs> comes the Swedish uh, flight shame term. And the one that I like actually better is the the plane or the train bragging, um, the opposite, the train humble brag. Um, anyway, the point being, I think flying—that's the reason. Driving is an interesting one where I think most folks would argue. Um, you know uh, we do have on the horizon a relatively straightforward decarbonization solution for driving which is electrify vehicles and decarbonize the electricity sector now you can argue about whether or not we think that's going to happen fast enough but there's a solution there however even in that case even if you you do that while you're in process until it's totally decarbonized it's just always going to be from an emissions perspective far far more efficient to take public transportation. And then there's all the other side benefits of public transportation that have nothing to do with emissions. So I think the the driving argument is um, replace car trips with public transit trips for the most part. uh, And in so doing, reduce emissions in the transportation sector while we decarbonize it.
0: As I dug into the numbers, I realized that these folks who are part of the no-fly movement are sure making themselves feel good. They're certainly doing an important service by signaling that people need to change their behavior, but they're not actually doing all that much about climate change. So when it comes to air travel, transatlantic flights account for about 1.6 tons of carbon dioxide per round trip. When it comes to a cross-country flight across the U.S., let's say to San Francisco from New York, it's about 09 tons. So when you look at car travel, you're looking at about 2.1 tons to 2.4 tons per year if you give up your car entirely. So those, again, are just such a small fraction of your overall carbon footprint. If you look at what these folks who are not traveling via airplane are doing, they're not actually seeing a gargantuan amount of savings relative to what they're actually giving up.
1: The point that you're making here seems to be similar to the one you made on agriculture, which is that just the slice of your personal um, carbon emissions responsibility pie that you can cut out by doing one of these things isn't huge. So
0: if you completely gave your car up and stopped flying entirely, you'd cut about four to 4.5 metric tons of carbon. That's a quarter of your emissions. That seems like uh, a lot to give up for not a lot of emission savings.
1: Huh. Well, it seems like a fairly, se- I mean, if what I care about is cutting my own personal emissions, then that does seem like a lot to me. You can cut a quarter out. Now, the, You know, obviously the, the salient question is gonna be like, do I have good alternatives? Can I, can I not fly or do I have to fly for work? Can I take a train instead? And how problematic would that be? You know, can I do I have good public transit options to replace my vehicle trips? Setting that aside, I don't know a quarter of your emissions um off of behavioral changes that you can enact seems meaningful to me,
0: right, but we're talking about no air travel and being completely car free. That's easy for people like us on the coasts, particularly on the automobile side, where we live in more likely live in cities where we have access to public transportation. But what about? The people who live all over the country that just don't have any public transportation systems at all, like telling them to just go car free seems absurd on its face. And in reality, they're not actually making that much of an impact if they ditch their car anyway.
1: It's definitely harder if you're not in an urban environment. But not to keep going back to how Europe is better on this, but I saw some stats the other day um, in Germany, new license, driver's license registrations for 17 to 25-year-olds are down like 40% over the last decade. So That's Germans all are- That's on their
0: phones and they're not meeting each other.
1: <laughs> and so they don't need to go drive to each yeah. other anymore. There you go. There's our solution. It wasn't, <laughs> in our deep decarbonization draft last year, didn't I draft like- Uh, virtual reality or augmented reality or something because I was talking about having meetings uh, not in person just digitally
0: you did maybe you weren't so far off okay so I've argued so far that certainly making these drastic changes in your life can have an impact. They can start shaving off emissions, but relative to the extreme changes that you might need to make in your life, they're not actually that big. So I'm working up to something here. I want to go to reducing energy use and and using renewables uh, lastly. So I own some shares in community solar uh, through a company that your organization invests in, Arcadia Power, that I have a 100% wind offering. I get... You know, some money off of my bill every month because I have community solar shares. And I've been a customer since last summer, but I've only offset in that year 2.6 tons of CO2. So even though I'm technically 100% renewable, which I know it's not, I mean, I know it's just an accounting trick. I don't claim to be 100% renewable, but for many people, it's a way to claim that they're 100% renewable. You're, again, shaving a very small amount of CO2 off of your total uh, carbon bill, so to speak.
1: That one actually feels the most impressive to me of any of the ones that you've described before, because it requires so little of you. Like, if... Right. Like you've done very, in fact, you're saving money with your community solar. You are maybe paying a little bit more for your hundred percent wind, what wrecks, but either way you're, you're doing very little. In fact, maybe you're getting some gain from it and you're reducing 2.6 tons as compared to, it was less than that for getting rid of your car or, and way less than that for cutting out meat from your diet. So this one feels to me like a no brainer.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. So let's say I take the next step and I do invest in a rooftop solar system I'm roughly going to save enough carbon dioxide to take a car off the road yearly. That's significant for sure. But relative to the amount of money I'm going to spend for that system, it doesn't feel like a lot of savings. So, of course, I'm going to, you know, reduce my electricity bill. It feels like the economic savings from solar are much more compelling than the CO2 savings. In fact, if you hearken back to our conversation with Hal Harvey many episodes ago, he calculated that rooftop solar is the most expensive way to cut carbon dioxide emissions. So again, relative to the tens of thousands of dollars that I would spend for that system, of course, I'm gonna save money over the lifetime of the system, but I'm I'm not actually gonna see that many uh, carbon dioxide savings. So the reason why I put all this together is because if you stack everything that I've outlined, all these life-changing decisions, getting rid of a car, investing tens of thousands of dollars in a solar system, giving up air travel completely, going completely vegetarian, you will, at most, cut your footprint in about half. Now think about the number of people who would be willing to do all of those things, let alone just one of them. You're talking about fairly minuscule savings collectively when you think about the number of people who'd be willing to make those changes or sacrifices or investments in their lives. So my argument is when you walk through these sectors, sure, you can shave significant pieces off your overall uh, carbon dioxide footprint, But collectively, when you consider how drastic some of these decisions are and you compare that to the number of people who'd be willing to make them, those actions don't actually have a huge impact on what we need to do to combat climate change. It's not going to come from individuals.
1: Well, I guess I'd say two things to that. The first one is just imagine that. 10% 10% of the population is willing to do the things that you describe. Maybe that's a high number, but let's be ambitious for a second. If 10% of the population cuts their personal emissions footprint 50%, then you've got a 5% overall reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. That would be a significant amount, right? There're very few individual things that like cut make that big a slice. Right? This is the way that people talk about how to decarbonize is with the, is with wedges, right? and each wedge is a different size, and each wedge sort of cuts a bit out of the out of the overall um, greenhouse gas emissions picture. If you can get 5% out of the demand side of the equation, I would take that as a win, personally.
0: Absolutely. But here's the last piece of this argument. If you look at who is actually responsible for emissions, 71% of global emissions have come from the world's top 100 corporations, according to the Carbon Disclosure Project. So collectively, although we could shave 5% off of our national emissions picture, which would be significant, even if we adhere to the strictest standards of living around air travel, car use, vegetarianism, renewable energy, we wouldn't begin to rival the emissions from the world's biggest corporations. So this isn't arguing necessarily that those actions can't have an impact it's just that they don't have a substantial impact on climate change and so when organizations come out with articles about eating less meat and changing your light bulbs after the next dire ipcc report comes out we need to treat it with appropriate skepticism and realizing that we're talking about playing around the edges and we cannot kid ourselves thinking that like even if tens of millions of people decide to make these life-altering shifts it's somehow going to help us solve climate change. It's just not when you look at the numbers.
1: Well, first of all, I would say in addition, you know, as we sort of talked about in the meat section, I think the uh, individual action becoming collective action, becoming a demand pull that changes what suppliers produce, is is one way to get at the you know, changing business practices for the 70 companies that represent or the 100 companies that represent 70% of emissions or whatever it is. Like how do you get those companies to to produce products that have less of an emissions impact? You show that there's demand for those products. So that's sort of thing number one. But I think the really core question here, which is an interesting one, is the question of distraction. So I think the point that you're making is, when an IPCC report comes out, you've got a moment where some group of people, large group of people are going to sort of reawaken to the challenges and the potential dire consequences of climate change. What do you do with that moment? And you're saying that what happens is uh, there's a bunch of additional articles that come out and say, here's what you can do in your personal life. Um, and that that is a, sort of distraction from the things you'd like them to be doing that you think would be more impactful. And I guess the question to me is, is it an or or is it an and? In other words, do we think that um, that people have sort of limited capacity and time and mental and real energy to dedicate to this problem, and so we need to be really targeted and say, this is the, this is the one thing we think you can do that will have the biggest impact, forget all the other things. Or do you think that it is a more holistic approach, which is take action in your personal life, vote based on this, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. participate in democracy in various ways to try to enact change there as well? Like, is it one or the other?
0: No, it's not one or the other, but I'm not supposed to be making a nuanced argument here. I'm supposed to be challenging my own belief.
1: So did you convince yourself that collective action does not have a huge impact Did
0: I convince
1: myself? Uh, Yes and no. I definitely changed
0: my perspective a bit. So firstly, I'll always believe that personal responsibility matters. If you can take actions, if you can drive less, find a less energy-intensive diet, limit your flying, you should. Because in aggregate, they definitely add up to something. For me, it's less about whether I'm solving climate change and more about whether I'm living up to what I believe. If I can take concrete actions... um, You know, so that I'm not just lecturing others about lifestyle, but living up to standards that I believe in. So you always want to make choices that reflect your beliefs. I also want to acknowledge something really important that you touched on, and that is that taking actions actually causes other people to change their behavior. This to me is one of the most powerful arguments for personal change. There's tons of social science that shows just how much your behavior can rub off on other people. And, you know, plugging in your electric car while others pump gas, showing off your solar panels on the street, those kinds of things can be a catalyst for other people to change. So in general, I don't think any less about personal action from a moral standpoint. After sorting through some of the numbers, though— I have a greater appreciation for how limited the carbon impact is relative to the drastic actions I outlined. Again, stopping flying, giving up your car, cutting out meat entirely. We often talk about these solutions as if they're going to solve the problem, but they take this massive re-engineering of our lives, and And I, I don't think we can count on them as a solution per se. A small wedge, yes, but let's just not pretend it's a solution. In reality, it's it's creating the regulations, incentives, the legal framework that push the world's biggest companies, the 71 companies responsible for the most carbon emissions, to make structural radical changes. So let's not kid ourselves. And so finally, what does that mean for actions that have the most impact? Voting for climate champions, going to local meetings, and planning board meetings, and making sure that your cities are structured in the right way, organizing, I think those are more consequential than any tweaks you can make around your diet or around how much you drive in your car. How do you think about it?
1: Um, I'm torn about it. I'm, I'm a skeptic that enough people will make substantial change to their behavior and their purchasing decisions to itself become a real meaningful wedge. Like you know, I was throwing a straw man out there, ten percent of people um reducing their emissions fifty percent. I don't know. I mean, to to get down to fifty percent, like you said, you have to make some pretty drastic changes. I do think there are a few places where individual action can spark something. i I, I think I actually believe in this beyond meat, impossible foods you know, meatless burger thing. Um, And I think that'll extend into other meats and things like that. I think if that becomes real and like 10, 20 years from now, it's just like totally normal for us to eat plant-based proteins. Um, We'll stop thinking of them as meat alternatives and they'll just become a bigger part of our diet. It'll take a while, but that I think could become a significant part of the emissions reduction picture in the ag sector. Um, There are other places where I don't, think it's going to make as much of a difference, like as much as I love seeing the reduction in flights that you are seeing in, uh, in Sweden, I don't think that's probably worldwide going to, going to make a big difference. I do think that like investing in transit infrastructure so that you don't need to fly, um, could, but I don't think that like individual action to decide not to fly. So I, I think I, for me, it's, I guess, sectorally specific,
0: well, what do you think? I'm sure we'll get plenty of strong reactions to, to this one. Uh, so let us know on Twitter how you make this calculation in your daily life. And what are some other strongly held beliefs that you've carried with you that you want to challenge yourself on or that you have challenged yourself on? You can find me, Shale Khan, and Interchange Show all on Twitter. And my co-host is Shale Khan. I am Stephen Lacey. This is the Interchange Conversations on the Future of Energy from Green Tech Media.